I'll invite you to stand with me now, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 as we move into this second chapter, really move into the body of uh, Paul's letter to uh, the Thessalonians. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we we're ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Let's pray together. Father, we begin our time praying for these that we've seen her testimony from, from half a world away, but brothers and sisters in Christ who are demonstrating to us exactly what we hear from the Apostle Paul this morning and exactly what we should all join in with Christians around the world, with Christians throughout history to say, we are all in for the mission of God. We are all in for gospel investment in the lives of one another and gospel proclamation in our community and around the world. That be our heart's cry today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'm not sure if this is the case at your house, but it is at ours every two years during the two weeks of the Olympics. It's pretty much just always on. And I get enthralled by the Olympics and it really doesn't matter who's competing and it really doesn't matter what they're competing in. I stayed up far too late one night watching the bicycle road race. These guys were riding, I think, clear across Japan, it's, it seemed like. I know nothing about, I hadn't been in a, on a bicycle in a decade. I know nothing about bicycling. But I watched these guys ride kilometer after kilometer, knowing nothing about the sport, just enthralled by what they're doing. Now, as some of you are aware, our youngest son is a competitive gymnast. And so we pay a lot of attention to the gymnastics that's going on. And yesterday afternoon, he says, is there gymnastics on? And you know, the Olympics is on several stations. We put one on and it was the trampoline gymnastics. I don't know how you even find out in life that you're good at the trampoline, but these people were amazing. Absolutely amazing. And some of them have been doing it. One of the guys, I think this was his fifth Olympics to compete. I mean, he was, he's like old as me out there jumping on a trampoline. I had no, I would have broken every bone in my body. And these guys are doing these flips and they're just absolutely amazing. Here's what I, here's what you know from the Olympics. If you watch this, we just normal average Joes couldn't come close to doing what these people do, but they make it look easy. I mean, you watch them compete and you're like, Maybe I could do that. No, you couldn't. No, I couldn't. 
Because to get to that level, to be an Olympian, even to be the last place, if you watch any of the races, you know, there's always that one person that's well behind everyone else. But even that one person would have outrun all of us, you know, by two or three times over. To get to that point where you are the best person or one of the best people in your nation, one of the best people in the world at whatever your discipline is, takes an all-in investment. It requires a commitment that most of us probably could never understand. That for years, decades even, these people wake up early in the morning and begin training and they train through late in the evening. There is a level of commitment that these athletes have achieved in their discipline that goes beyond what most people will ever understand. And church, this is a great example for us today because we see these athletes compete day after day in the Olympics and we understand, if we will think about it for a moment, the level of commitment they must have and what I believe we should be called to through our text this morning is the same level of commitment to gospel investment. Last week we considered from the end of Paul's thanksgiving for the church, his opening uh, statements to them, the mission of God for his church to make disciples that make disciples. We clearly defined what God's desire for his church is, and that is that we be a vibrant body of believers that are committed to one another and committed to making disciples both inside the congregation and in our community. This really serves, this last week, this week, and next week, really serve kind of as a three-part series. Next week, we're going to see our motivation to engage in this mission. Why are we all called to do this? Today, we want to see our level of investment. That the mission of God for his church is not something we can simply dabble in. Imagine for a minute if someone wanted to go to the Olympics, let's say in swimming, but all they ever did was went to their neighborhood community pool and played Marco Polo. Would that person ever really rise to the level of an Olympic swimmer? No, but that's how so many Christians in our world today seek to engage in the mission of God. I'll participate every now and then. I'll put my big toe in the swimming pool when it meets my needs. I'll, I'll participate when I want to, when it fits into my schedule, when it makes sense for me, when it's something that I can believe in or buy into. But what we're called to as Christians, a part of God's church, is an all-in gospel investment, an Olympic-level commitment to the mission of God for his church. Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul begins the body of his letter. Everything previous to this have just been a greeting and a thanksgiving. Now it's equally the word of God and we've treated it as such over the last few weeks. But now we move into his main thought. And how Paul begins this first letter that he writes, not only to the Thessalonian church, but the first letter that we have recorded from the apostle Paul, the oldest that we have recorded from him. The first thing that he does in the body of his letter is defend the mission. Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's with two men named Silas and Timothy, and Paul has now come to Macedonia. He shared the gospel with the Thessalonians briefly, was run out of town, and is now writing back to them most likely from the southern part of Greece in a city called Corinth. 
And what Paul has to do here at the beginning of the body of his letter is defend his mission. He says in verses one and two, for you yourselves know brothers that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Why does Paul feel the need to begin this way? Why does he have to defend the mission that he and Silas and Timothy are on? Why writing back here some months later after leaving Thessalonica, does he need to write this? Well, obviously, Word has reached Paul that there is some discontentment that has arisen from somewhere. Now, scholars, Bible scholars, commentators have, have theorized numerous places that this could have come from. I just want to mention three because these are the three that I think have the most biblical support. First, and it's likely that there is some uh, opposition, there is some discontentment rising from each of these, which is why I want to mention them. The first is from the Jewish community there in Thessalonica. We already know from Acts chapter 17, where, where Luke records the ministry of Paul there in that city, we're told that the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out uh, to the crowd. Now the house of Jason was kind of the home base for these new Christians there in Thessalonica. And this is when Paul and Silas and Timothy were there. And the first opposition they meet was from the Jewish community, the synagogue there in that city. And so it's very likely that there, is, there remains months later a continued opposition for this fledgling church from the Jews in the synagogue. But that's probably not the only place they're finding opposition and creating discontentment within the church. Later in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we read, For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So in verse 14, Paul says it's not only from the Jewish people there in the synagogue in Thessalonica that you're finding opposition, but it is also from your own countrymen. Most of the converts were Gentile converts, and so it is other Gentiles. Now, why are the other Gentiles who are already pagans. They don't believe in the one true God. They don't, they serve numerous gods. It was very tied into their system. Why are they opposing Christianity? Well, apparently Christianity there in Thessalonica, as, as it had in other cities, was causing major uproars. People were coming to faith in Jesus and it was upsetting the apple cart. And because of that, the, there was concern within the city that the Romans were going to exercise further control. This was a free city, meaning they governed themselves inside of the Roman Empire. And so it's likely that there are those uh, Gentile leaders in the city that are opposing the advancement of the church because they're going to bring further rule from Rome. But there's a third option. And that is that discontentment was actually just growing within the church itself because of this brief period of time that the mission team actually spent there and that Paul hasn't come back. If we keep reading in verses 17 and 18 of chapter two, we read, but since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavor the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. 
Paul was able to send Timothy back to them, but he was, not able, he was not able up until this point, he does go on his third missionary journey back to Thessalonica, but up until this point, he was not able to get back to them. So you can kind of hear maybe a little bit of grumbling that Paul shares the gospel with them. They come to faith and then almost immediately because of what happens in Acts 17, they have to leave. And now Paul hasn't come back. All he's done is send this young boy. Timothy wasn't very old, maybe even a teenager at this point. He sends this young guy back to them. Paul doesn't come himself. And now we can sit on the outside looking into this thinking, well, that shouldn't make them very mad. But have you ever thought somebody should do something that they didn't do? And it just kind of put a burr in your saddle a little bit. It made you a little angry because you had an expectation that somebody was going to do something. And so Paul here at the beginning of the body of his letter feels need to explain. Now there's a sentiment in our modern culture that says that we don't need to give explanation to anyone, right? That we don't owe anybody an explanation of why we do what we do. As long as we're doing what we think's right, as long as what we're doing what we think's best, what's best for us, then we owe no explanation to anyone. So why would Paul begin the body of his letter with this explanation? Why, why would he take some time to explain to them why he hasn't returned, explain to them why their, their coming was not in vain and why they came to declare the gospel of God to them? Because part of making disciples, part of engaging in the mission of God is explaining to people why we do what we do. It's, it's bearing our souls to people opening ourselves up and explaining to them why we're acting the way that we're acting, why we're doing the things that we're doing, why we're prioritizing the things that we're prioritizing or devaluing the things that we're devaluing. That's part of discipleship is being willing to say, let me pull back the curtain and show you what is going on. And that is what Paul does here in this opening paragraph of the body of his letter. So he defends the mission and then what Paul is going to do is he's going to show the motives and the methods that his mission team had while in Thessalonica. He is still in explanation mode. All of these eight verses are, are explanation mode. Paul is still very clearly making disciples as he writes this letter because he wants to remind them of what happened. Remember, we're calling this series Past, Present, and Future. And this is part of the past. Paul's wanting to remind them what he did and why he did it when he was amongst them, when his mission team was there. Now, what I'm going to do with verses three through eight is kind of take them out of order because Paul bounces back and forth from motive uh, to method, and I'm gonna, I just wanna group them together in their category. So we're gonna look at the pure motives for gospel investment first. Look at the beginning of verse three. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity. So Paul, right off the bat here, when he's going to address the motives for their mission amongst the, the now Christian converts in Thessalonica, he begins by saying, our appeal does not spring from two things, error or impurity. The mission team's motives wasn't based on error. That's where Paul begins. The gospel that they preached to them in the short period of time that they are in that city was and still is today the true gospel. 
error, false teaching has a way of sliding into the church. And error doesn't even have to be intentional error. Paul's going to get to intentional error here in uh, later verses. But where he begins, the word that he uses at the beginning doesn't necessarily mean intentional like deception or lying. It just means error that, that Paul now having have left Thessalonica, having progressed through on his missionary journey, still has firm footing on the truth of the gospel, that the gospel that they brought there into that city was not error. But error finds itself so often creeping into the church. Paul regularly in other letters to New Testament churches had to address the fact that they had crept into error. We read this in Colossians chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Here's what Paul tells the church in uh, Colossae. He says, it is only Christ that is our firm foundation of truth. That these other things that people are wanting to lead you away on that can so often captivate our mind, which is why he says, see to it that no one takes you captive, because these other things can so often captivate our mind. And they sound good, oftentimes they even sound Christian. They sound right, because there's just enough truth mixed with the air in them, but ultimately they are error. And so Paul says, we weren't motivated by something that was wrong, we were motivated by something that was true. Then he says, the second is that they weren't motivated by impurity. Now that word that is translated in the ESV Bible as impurity literally means impure motives. Paul is directly addressing impure motives. He's, and he's gonna define what some of those impure motives were in a moment. But just know this, it wasn't because of error that they came to that city and preached the gospel. And it wasn't because they desired something impure. Their desires for the church, their motive for proclaiming the gospel and being there amongst those people and even now, months later writing this letter, were pure motives. Look at the rest of, look now at verse five. Verse five begins, for we never came with, all right? And so then I want to skip to the end of that, the, the end of verse five, nor with pretext for greed. So one of the impure motives that people may have thought Paul and his mission team came with was the impure motive of greed, that they had something to gain by coming to that city and preaching the gospel and then leaving. The mission team's concern, Paul, Silas, Timothy, their concern wasn't earthly riches, this wasn't about gaining a following to fleece people of their money. Now, it doesn't take a, a super wise person or even a, a person that's, that's very observant at all in our culture to know that there are people out there in the name of the gospel of Jesus Christ that are seeking personal gain. I don't have to name these people for you to know who they are. You can just know who they are because they're, they've become prevalent in our culture. I mean, these people are everywhere. And if we think it's bad here, there are places in our world that it's even worse, that, that, that it is show it on the outside. But who is it that's never fooled by what happens on the inside? God. And so Paul appeals to God and he says, our motive was 
pure, it was not for greed. That word pretext there means false excuse or even the wearing of a mask. Paul says, we weren't trying to fool you. We didn't, we didn't come to you because there was something that we could get out of it. Can I just, I want to illustrate this. I hope this comes across well. Sometimes I wonder in our church and others, you just watch the places people go and the things people do. I wonder if we go into nice, wealthy neighborhoods because there's benefit of going into nice, wealthy neighborhoods to share the gospel. And we neglect, and I'm just talking about Christianity as a whole, we tend to neglect poor neighborhoods because there's less gain from a poor neighborhood. I wonder if that's something that we ought to think about and, and consider even just in our own individual hearts as, as we talk about sharing the gospel and reaching out in our community. Are we only thinking about some of the neighborhoods maybe some of us live in? Or are we thinking about neighborhoods that we may not even want to go into? Because if our goal is let's go get people that are going to bring more to the table, we're going about this the wrong way. We take that mask off with Paul. We say we don't have any pretext of greed, God as our witness. Then the next impurity he gives us is in verse six. He says, for we do not seek glory from people, whether from you or for others. We have to understand something about first century uh, philosophers. There was a traveling circuit in the Roman empire of first century philosophers. They were the rock stars and movie stars and professional athletes of the day. Probably the most well-known people in the empire were philosophers. And they would travel from one city to another. They would set up camp and they would philosophize. Is that the right word? I don't know. But that's what I'm going to say they did. They would philosophize. And they would create followings. Then they would move to the next city and they would philosophize and create followings. And here's why they did it. They did it for their own glory. They did it for attention. They did it to build a following. They traveled from place to place to gain a great following. And so there is some maybe in Thessalonica that would have accused Paul's mission team of that same thing. All they did was come here and build their name. Now, did Paul build the name? Sure he did. 2,000 years later, we're still talking about him, okay? Paul built a name. So this isn't an indictment of famous Christian people that Paul was a famous Christian person. He's writing this to them, but it's about motive. He didn't go to that city to become famous. The work of the Lord that God did through his mission team is why we still know of him today. But his motive wasn't his own glory. I imagine Paul in his mind as he writes this, who would have been a great student of the Old Testament, having been uh, raised, he says of himself, a Hebrew of Hebrews would have had Psalm 115 in mind, which begins, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. You see, while the philosophers of the day, their desire was to build their own name, and you take that into the 21st century, and you look at social media influencers and national media pundits, people that want more and more followers and more and more listeners, and they, they gauge their success by the number of Instagram followers or YouTube subscribers, uh, the, these, these people that are desirous of building a following. Paul says, our mission is different than that. 
The church, the Christian mission is different than that. We don't gauge success by the amount of followers because this is not for us. The glory does not belong to us. There should be no glory in it for us. The glory belongs to the Lord and the Lord alone. And if our desire is to engage in the mission of God so that people will know our name, so that people will sing praises of us or of our church, then we are in it for the wrong reason. It's not for our glory. It's for God's. Oh, that we would give him all of the glory and honor in what he is doing through us as we engage in his mission. Then, the pure methods for gospel investment. There are five here. I'm going to go through them quickly. Three of them are written in negatives. Same things that Paul's already done. We did not do these things. And then he concludes with two positives, things that he did do. The first is at the end of verse three. Or any attempt to deceive. Here's what Paul says. Our methods did not include lies. We did not lie to you. Now he's already said that it wasn't founded on error, right? But error, again, can be uh, intentional or unintentional. A lie, though, is an intentional. Paul says, we were not attempting to deceive you. That was not our goal. Our goal wasn't try to try to twist something in, in a certain way, just give you a half truth or a part truth or, or, or give you something that you can believe in that's, that we know to be false. He says, we didn't lie to you. We just shared with you the truth. This was actually a common accusation against the apostles in the New Testament church that, that at least some of their opposition came from people who were saying, you're lying. Peter addresses this in his, for his second letter to the church. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, both Paul and Peter were eyewitnesses of the majesty of Jesus. Peter, before his crucifixion and after his resurrection, Paul, after his ascension, when Jesus himself appears to uh, Paul in all his glory on the road there to Damascus. So Peter and Paul would agree in this, like we didn't create this, these cleverly devised myths to try to build ourselves up, to try to make ourselves rich, to try to give ourselves our own power, but all we've done is tell you what we have seen. Here, Paul stresses, our methodology was not to lead you astray or lie to you. He says, we never lied to you. Our goal was never to lie. Now look at verses four in the first part of verse five for the second one. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know. The second thing Paul says they didn't do in their, in their methods is they didn't tell them just what they wanted to hear. Now go back into verse four and we'll see how he gets there. He says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So there's this foundation of truth, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. 
for we never came with words of flattery, as you know. So twice here in this passage, Paul says, we didn't just tell you what you wanted to hear. We didn't speak to please men, and we didn't speak with words of flattery. So what did they speak with? They spoke with that which God had entrusted to them, the gospel alone. And throughout time, people have flocked to those who will only tell them what they want to hear. Later in his ministry, Paul would write to Timothy, who's part of this mission team with him. This is right at the end of Paul's life. And he says in 2 Timothy 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, people oftentimes will quote this as some type of sign that we're, oh, this is, must be the end times because that's what Paul was talking about. No, that's not at all what Paul was talking about. And actually, Paul was writing about something that happened in his lifetime and has happened throughout the history of the church. This is not a new problem. By the way, most problems aren't new problems. Most of the time when we see something on our landscape, like greedy preachers or falsehoods being proclaimed to people or people going with certain pretexts with a part of their mission, seeking their own glory. These aren't just things that happen now, they're things that happened then and have happened in every generation between then and now. And one of those is this desire that people have to not walk away from the corporate gathering of the body with somebody having actually challenged them, but just tell them what they wanna hear. Just tell them some good stories, make them laugh, make them feel good about themselves, fill the tank up a little bit. I mean, we can go about life until next week, until we come back for that same thing. Paul says there are gonna be people that want this, but that's not what we did. We didn't come to please men. We didn't come with words of flattery. We didn't come and tell you things you just wanted to hear. We told you things you needed to hear. Oh, Nansman River. Would somebody stand in this place until Jesus Christ returns telling these people what they need to hear, not just what they want to hear? The third, verse six, end of verse six, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Third thing they didn't do is they didn't demand it. And he appeals to at least his apostleship, likely also the apostleship of Silas, possibly the apostleship of Timothy, but he, he uses plural there. So it's at least two of the mission team that were considered, considered apostles in the first century church. And he says, as apostles, we could have demanded it. Paul used a similar language in a personal letter to a man named Philemon and a restoration of a relationship. And he's like, I could make you do this, but I'm not gonna make you do it. Because when we seek to make someone do something, when we try to force someone to do something, it never really ends well, does it? Because we can't for, force someone to believe anything. And even if we could, why would we want to try? If the apostle Paul, who actually has the apostolic authority, by the way, which none of us have because only those who had seen Jesus in the flesh had it. If he actually had the authority to demand something as an apostle and didn't do it, why would we try? We can't force anyone to believe anything. And it doesn't end well when we even try. So we don't make demands of people. We share the true hope of the gospel and we trust the Holy Spirit to do that which only he can do. 
Then there are two things that Paul says we did do. First, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So the first thing they were is they were gentle. And then Paul uses an example of that. He says, like a nursing mother. Now the word that he uses for we were gentle among you uh, literally means we were childlike among you. Right? We, we, we made ourselves as if children among you. And then he appeals to the position of motherhood, a nursing mother. So a nursing mother is one obviously with a newborn baby. And how gentle is a mother, a nursing mother with a newborn baby? As gentle as anyone ever is with anything, right? When you think of a, a, a mother of a newborn, what do you think of? You think of someone who is loving, passionate, caring, faithful, kind, and these are the images that Paul wants us to have as he talks about what he did do, what his mission team did do amongst this church. He says, we were gentle. We were like children among you, like nursing mothers, kind and loving and passionate and caring and kind. That when we go about the mission of God, I know I addressed this a little bit last week, but I think it's helpful again. When we go about uh, making disciples, participating in gospel investment in the lives of people around us and the community and in our world, we have to do so. In the image of Paul, we do so as like a nursing mother. It's not about berating people and beating people up and forcing people to do something. Could we say this of ourselves? That our engagement in God's mission is like a nursing mother. Mother, oh, we are gentle and loving and faithful and caring and kind as we invest ourselves in the growth of others. Final thing. He says in verse eight, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. This is the final thing Paul says. When we were there, we were all in. We didn't just preach the gospel and go home. We didn't, we didn't just preach the gospel and, and leave, even though he was driven out of town and did leave. He says, we, when we were there, notice the language. We didn't just give to you the gospel of God, but also our own selves. He says, every moment was committed to the mission. Everything in our lives was committed to this cause. We didn't just give you truth. We gave you truth and ourselves. They were all in. So what? Our commitment to internal and external gospel investment should come second to none. Last week, I asked us to evaluate corporately how we're engaging in God's mission to make disciples. Today, I want you to evaluate personally and ask this question. Is my commitment both to internal and external, I'm going to explain that, but both to internal and external gospel investment, has that commitment taken a back seat to other commitments in my life? The Bible doesn't tell us to not have other commitments in our lives. You're supposed to be committed to your family. You're supposed to be committed to your work. You're supposed to do both of those things wholeheartedly as unto the Lord, as like everything else that God has placed before us. But above all else should be our commitment to both internal and external gospel investment. Let me start with internal because maybe you didn't expect that. But you need to be committed to the gospel investment in your own life both investing in yourself 
and allowing others to invest in you. And if we go to 1 Peter chapter 1, he's going to make this argument for us. Listen to what Peter writes. Therefore, preparing your mind for action. All right, so just take that for a minute. Preparing your mind for action. What's action? Gospel investment, the mission of God. Therefore, preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Internal preparation is required for action. We can't neglect our own soul care and think we'll be effective in our mission. So yes, you need to be committed to your own internal gospel investment. You need to ask this question, am I in God's word daily? Am I in prayer daily? Am I seeking to live as him, put off sin and put on Christ daily? And am I allowing others to invest that in me? Last week, I, I um, told you, we need everybody in this church invested in a small group. Can I tell you why we need everybody in this church invested in a small group? Because you need people in your life that will tell you hard things like Paul told this church. You need people that know you better than the hundreds of people that come to church here can. So you need to be with 10, 12, 14, 16 other people who know what's happening in your life and can invest in you. And then you can externally invest in them. If we fast forward all the way to the end of Paul's third missionary journey, after staying in Corinth, he goes uh, back to Israel, goes back to Antioch, then embarks on a third missionary journey. At the end of that, Paul knows he's going to prison. He sails to Ephesus, calls out the Ephesian elders. And here's what he says to them in that speech in Acts 20. He says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Years later, lots of ministry between his time in Thessalonica and here, Acts 20, Paul says, I count my life, I do not account my life as any value at all, except the mission of God to proclaim the gospel. This is the call to external investment. This is the call that we should all seek to emulate in our lives. I wonder when we get to the end of our lives, we're we going to look back on it and say, the greatest investment I made was in God's mission for his church. My greatest commitment was in God's mission for my church. And you say, wait, there are other important things, aren't there? Sure, but here's the great news about gospel investment. You interweave those things in it so your family is gospel investment. Whether your children are at home or they're gone, be committed to gospel investment in your family. Your work is gospel investment. You say, wait, no, my employer says I can't talk about those things at work. No, but you can build relationships with people at work and talk about it after work, can't you? Can't we find ways in these other things that take so much of our time? Can't we find opportunities? Can't God provide opportunities for us then to join with Paul and say, I count my life, I do not account my life of any value, but I finish the race. That's what I want to do. Gospel investment, both in my own life, the lives of others around me and around the world for the glory of God as we go on his mission. It's the question for each of us today, is have we allowed that to become second to something? And if so, will you repent of that?
Will you say, God, use me afresh and anew for your gospel to go forth? Let's pray together. God, will you help us? Because we are so easily distracted. We so easily become desirous of things we shouldn't be desirous of. But you and your Holy Spirit's power in our lives keep us faithful. And in that faith, God, you use us beyond ourselves. You use our church beyond what we are capable of doing. So would you do that? Help us to prioritize that which is a true priority as we go about life, seeking to finish the race well, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.